I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. We come this morning to the what may well be the concluding message of our study. We began, oh, three years ago, maybe, in the Ten Commandments, kind of leapfrogging between our study of the commandments, each one of them, and then with other texts interspersed along our journey through the 20th chapter of Exodus. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. Our Father, we come this morning pleading our ignorance and asking for your wisdom that you would help us to know your mind. Indeed, if there be any here that are yet in the ignorance of sin, we pray that you would make them wise unto salvation, that you would come down by your Spirit, that you would illuminate our minds, help us to see wondrous things old and new out of your Word. Indeed, for those that are yet in their sins, we pray you would open their eyes to see the kingdom of God, you would grant them the gifts of faith and repentance. And for those who are your own, that you would take these things, make them to be fresh and powerful in our hearts this day. For Lord, we come here coveting many things, but Lord, make us to covet that, that one thing needful, Jesus Christ, that righteous covetousness, that one that would make Jesus Christ our own. Make him the portion of our heart, both now and forever. So, Lord, hear us as we pray in our ignorance. We pray in our sin, asking that you would forgive us. You would apply fresh measures of the blood of Christ to us this morning. For even in our hearing of the word of God, our ears do not hear as they should. Sin plugs our ears and will not allow us to hear that engrafted word which is able to save our souls, that word which is enabled, which would enable us to grow in grace and in conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, you know our several needs this morning. We pray that you would come down on high and that we would enjoy the inestimable privilege of having your special presence that you promised to be wherever two or three are gathered in the name of your Son, for we pray these things in his exalted name. Amen. Perhaps none of God's commands so clearly reveals our depravity as the Tenth Commandment. Covetousness is so deeply rooted in our hearts that we cannot see it. Francis Xavier, co-founder of the Jesuits, famously observed... 
I have heard thousands of confessions, but never one of covetousness. Well, we return to finish our sketch of the Ten Commandments today. But let me say right away that depravity blinds us to our sin. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19 and verse 12, No man can understand his errors. We're born with lying hearts. Jeremiah gives us God's judgment. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so it is that Solomon warns us that he who trusts in his own heart, and that's what we're told to do today by our culture, trust in your own heart, it'll never, never lead you astray. No, Solomon says that he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, Proverbs 28 and verse 26. Only the one who made the heart knows its dark twists and turns. Only he can perfectly read and rightly judge our hearts. As Jeremiah goes on to record, God speaks, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. You see, only he can reveal our hearts to us. God has given us his moral laws as the rule of our duty toward God and toward others, and as a searchlight to expose our failures as sin. The Tenth Commandment, which prohibits covetousness, perhaps more than any other, exposes our failure to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The Bible teaches that the law is spiritual. It addresses not only our actions, but especially the heart motive behind our actions. We noted last time that the Tenth Commandment was the key that unlocked Paul's knowledge of his sin. He says in the seventh chapter of Romans, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Did Paul know the Tenth Commandment? Obviously he did. He was trained in the knowledge of the Ten Commandments and of the rest of the Bible from the dawning of his consciousness. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He was Gamaliel's golden boy. He was the up-and-coming rabbi of his days, and yet he was slain when God brought home the Tenth Commandment with power to Paul's heart. Only then did he begin to understand and feel the evil power of his unlawful desires. Stephen Sharnock observes, Paul thought himself a righteous person till he came to measure himself by the exact and spiritual image of the law. His head and the law were acquainted, and then he thought himself a living person. But when his heart and the law became acquainted, there he found himself dead, and his high opinion of himself fell to the ground. Brethren, you and I are no different. Each one of us is born with a spiritual heart disease called covetousness. This malady is found in the spiritual DNA of all people. And lest you think 
that you escape this disturbing diagnosis. Jesus, our great physician, teaches that from within, out of the heart of men, proceed deeds of coveting. That's what God sees. And that's where our covetous comes from. It comes out of our covetous hearts. Deeds of coveting begin with an attitude of coveting. So covetous deeds are rooted in our covetous hearts. And if you doubt that you are covetous, you do not know your heart. If you deny that you're afflicted with this sin, Jesus calls you a liar. Sober words these are, but true. We must know that we are sick before we will seek help. Jesus came not to heal the healthy, but the sick, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sin's power in no small part lies in our ignorance of its evil and our unwillingness to root it out. Covetousness is no exception. We will never do effective battle against our unlawful desires as long as we deny them or we downplay their evil. You see, brethren, our hearts must be mastered by God's law and empowered by God's Spirit if we would do effective battle against this master's sin. Be sure that if you're not killing this sin, this sin will be killing you, to borrow from John Owen. Mr. Plummer observes, this command clearly shows that the seat of the divine government in man is the human heart. When that is right, all is right. When that is wrong, all is wrong. When we came to open up the Tenth Commandment last Lord's Day, we considered introductory questions about the Tenth Commandment. We looked at the biblical words, translated covet and what they teach. We looked at the sins that were forbidden, are forbidden and the duties commanded generally in the Tenth Commandment. And then we answered the interesting question, but I believe relevant, why most Protestants have one commandment forbidding covetousness while Roman Catholics and Lutherans have two. And then we looked at a definition of the sin defining the Tenth Commandment, the sin forbidden. And then we looked at the relationship of the Tenth Commandment to the other commandments. And then we concluded with a couple of applications. We be we sought to behold the subtle power of covetousness, and that God has given us the preaching of His Word to expose our covetousness. Now this morning, we come to consider finally the principal teaching of the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, etc. We saw that covetousness at its basis, is a very strong desire. But brethren, lest we misunderstand, the Bible does not obviously forbid all desire, even strong desire. 
Indeed, we are commanded to fervently desire those things that are pleasing to God, beneficial to others, and helpful to ourselves as Christians. We should strongly desire to grow in the grace of God that we might more accurately reflect Jesus Christ. We should pant after that kind of holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And this strong desire will be evident in various attitudes. First of all, it will be evident in our diligent, prayerful, regular attendance upon public and private means of grace. We will desire those things. We'll seek after them. That's why you're here today, I trust. You're sitting here hearing the preaching of the Word of God. You're singing hymns. You're involved in praying and in fellowship. You desire these things. Furthermore, it will be evident in striving to be more holy and heavenly minded in your conversation and your conduct. In this putrid age in which we are living, you strive to be salt. In all the darkness around you, you seek to be the light of Jesus Christ to this world. Furthermore, your strong desire will be evident in the radical killing of your sin in all areas of life. You won't give a pass to any known sin. You will be ruthless in your rooting out and your putting to death of your sin. Furthermore, this strong desire will be evident in looking for every opportunity to do good to your neighbors to the glory of God. Furthermore, you'll be seeking to be content, fully content with God in all of his dealings with you under the sun. Now you may be sure that our regard for the 10th commandment, perhaps more than any other commandment, is an accurate barometer of our spiritual health. Since, as we noted last time, this commandment lies at the heart of the other nine. Now, as we contemplate the principal teaching of the Tenth Commandment, we will consider three chief responsibilities required by this Tenth Commandment. We will use the Tenth Duty in the summary of our covenant responsibilities from our church's constitution. You'll find them on the back flyleaf of the Trinity Hymnal, all ten of them that reflect a practical application of the tenth, Ten Commandments. It's a succinct outline of our duty regarding the Tenth Commandment. Now, when you join this church and when others join this church, when we receive them as new members, we stand before God and in each other's presence. And we solemnly repeat, among the other words that precede them, these. Tenth, we agree to be fully content with our own condition in life, to rejoice in the advancement of our neighbor, and to avoid envying him or coveting anything that is his. 
Now, brethren, let us consider these three chief, these three primary and principal duties flowing out of the Tenth Commandment. I'm going to consider them out of order for the purpose of this message. Let us notice first that the Tenth Commandment forbids us from coveting our neighbor or envying our neighbor or coveting anything that is his. Now, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, one who is covetous is marked by inordinate desire for wealth or possessions or for another's possessions, having a craving for possession. And brethren, this definition largely agrees with the biblical definition. It recognizes that covetousness involves a a desire or craving first for wealth or possessions, either something we don't have or something that belongs to another person, and that this desire or craving is inordinate. That is, it is excessive, it's wrong, and from the perspective of the scriptures, it is forbidden. This definition also suggests the sin of envy, which is closely associated with covetousness. Envy is, first of all, a feeling of grudging admiration and desire to have something that is possessed by another. Furthermore, it's spite and resentment at seeing the success of another. Now, if you take the sin of covetousness and you boil it all down, you boil it to its essence, at its heart, covetousness expresses discontentment. Discontentment with God as the giver of all things, discontentment with another's blessings, and discontentment with our own lives because we don't have what God has given to others, things that we think we deserve and should have ourselves. Now, under this first point, I borrowed extensively from Thomas Boston's very suggestive sermon on the Tenth Commandment. I've adjusted the language. I've edited it for length as well. Boston, after noting the duties that are commanded, he enlarges upon the sins forbidden. And he states, of all our parts, that is, all the aspects of our being, Our diseased heart is the hardest to be commanded and kept within bounds. A person may be of a courteous, obliging behavior, keep his hands from killing or anything that leads to it, his body from uncleanness, his hands from stealing, and his tongue from lying, while his heart may be like a troubled sea tossed about with tormenting passions." He says, the Bible paints this sin in black colors. It is the hue of hell all over. And then he deals with various points in expositing the sins forbidden. I just give you the heads. First of all, the nature of discontentment, he says, is a compound of the blackest ingredients, the scum of the corrupt heart boiling up, 
and mixed up to make the hellish composition. Those aren't very flattering words to speak about this master. Sin. He expresses the way it displays itself. First of all, this nature of discontent, a, a heart, it will be a heart rebellious against God's will. Rebellious against God's will. We say, in effect, not God's will, but my will be done. I don't want his way. I want my way. And I'm not going to be happy until I get it. And that leads to a heart unhappy with God's dealings. A person who has a covetous heart will have a profound unhappiness with providence, the way God is ruling and leading in his life. Furthermore, the nature of discontentment, the evidence of it is a heart angry with our condition. He says, the heart of the discontented person barks as dogs do at the moon and with the same success. We're irritable, we're irritated with our inability to change things. And it just gets under our skin and it irks us. And then he speaks about the rise of discontentment. The rise of discontentment further displays its evil. What does it come out of? First of all, it rises from a blinded judgment that calls evil good and good evil and cannot embrace the wisdom of God's providence. It sees it as foolish. Furthermore, it rises from a proud heart. Pride is a root sin. We always think we're right and other people are wrong, even that God is wrong. Furthermore, it rises from an unmortified love of the things of this world. And he quotes Paul in 1 Timothy 6. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. How the love of money deranges people's minds. They'll do anything to get it. And in the end, they do themselves untold mischief. Furthermore, it rises from a spirit of unbelief, this discontentment. Unbelief, always doubting God. Yes, God, but never trusting his ways and his wisdom, always thinking we know better ourselves than God. Notice thirdly, after seeing the nature and the rise of discontentment, the effects of discontentment, he says, are very black. It is revealed in its evil fruits. What are the evil fruits of discontentment? First of all, discontent spoils our communion with God and our access to Him. You see, when we're discontent, you know, how can we enjoy God? How can we have fellowship with God? We're angry with Him. We don't want to spend time with Him. 
No, we don't have that submissive spirit that says not my will, but thine be done. Lord, you lead and you guide me in the paths of righteousness. For your name's sake, you lead and I'll follow. Secondly, discontent indisposes us for holy duties. Think about that. How can we perform duties rightly and acceptably before God when we are discontent? We are indisposed to speak to God in prayer. When we're angry with God, when we harbor hot, hard thoughts about God, we don't want to come to Him in prayer. We don't want to be around Him. We don't want to think about Him. Nor can we hear Him speaking to us in His Word. You see, discontent fills our ears with, with the wax of rebellion. We don't want to hear what God has to say to us. We not only won't speak to Him, we won't listen to Him when He would speak to us. Thirdly, discontent even unfits us for the work of our ordinary calling. Think about going to work when you're mad at God. Brethren, we don't do our best work for our employer as long as we harbor hard thoughts against God. We're distracted. We've we don't, we don't reckon that it's the Lord Christ we serve, that we're to do everything we do to the glory of God, whatever your hand puts, uh, finds to do, do it with all of your might to His honor. No, we're slack-handed, we're distracted, we don't do our work as we should. Furthermore, our discontent makes other people uneasy to be around us. We love being around joyful people, do we not? But people that are grinding their jaw against God, they're no fun to be around. And we're, if we're like that, people will avoid being around us. We want to be around joyful people, people that uplift us, people that point us to God and speak of the, the good things God is doing in our lives. If we're, if we're Christians, that kind of person's a magnet to us. If we're walking with God. But if we're not, we're sullen, we're distracted, we're irritable. Furthermore, discontent makes us our own tormentor. We're not happy with God, we're not happy with our circumstances, we're not happy with ourselves. 1 Kings 21 and verse 4. Ahab couldn't get what he wanted. And so he pouted. So Ahab came into his house, sullen and vexed, because of the word of Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he, that is Ahab, lay down on his bed and turned his face away and ate no food. He pouted. He had a little pity party. Jezebel comes in, says, get out of here. He wants you around. So Naboth won't give me his vineyard. Sixthly, discontent is not only tormenting to our mind, but is also ruinous to our body. There's a psychosomatic effect between joy and well-being and being discontent and suffering the physical effects of it. 
Proverbs 17, 22 recognizes this. A joyful heart is good medicine. That's not just a metaphorical statement. That's a physical statement. That's a physiological statement. A joyful heart is good medicine for the rest of the body. We see this in our brother who's suffering with cancer. He has a joyful heart. And to one degree or another, under the blessing of God, it's helped sustain his life. The joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. And that doesn't matter how physically healthy that you are. It's going to shrink and shrivel you. It'll make you a shell of what you once were. Furthermore, discontentment sucks the sap out of all of our enjoyments. It robs us of our joy. It's like a pouting little child that doesn't get his way. You can put anything else before him, and he ain't happy because he wants that and that alone. Finally, discontent always makes us ungrateful. And he gives the illustration of Adam. God put Adam in paradise, setting before him the fruit of all trees but one. And as long as that one fruit was out of his reach, he couldn't be thankful to God for all of the variety that he gave him all around him. He couldn't see those trees. He could only see the one forbidden one. He had blinders on to all God's blessings. All he could see was the forbidden fruit. And he wanted that. He didn't want any other. He wanted that one. And how could he be grateful when he views God as being an ogre? You're keeping me from what I really want. And he broke all the other commandments out of gratitude to God, ingratitude to God. Furthermore, our Constitution, if you'll notice, recognizes that the Tenth Commandment also forbids envy. When we covet, we display an excessive desire for what we do not have, especially something that God would forbid us from having. But when we envy, we feel spiteful toward the person who has what we want. <clears throat> Boston goes on to describe envy as a sword that wounds three persons at once. Boston says, Envy strikes against God because it is highly offensive and dishonorable to Him. It argues with His government of the world, especially with our own lives. It accuses Him of folly, of being impartial and being unjust. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 20 and verse 15? At the end of that parable, he says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? God made us, and he's given us different lives. And he has given us some things he hasn't given others. He's given others some things 
that he hasn't given us. He has the right to do that, does he not? He made us and not we him. Our eye may be envious, envious because God is generous. So it strikes against God. Secondly, envy strikes against our neighbor. It's a bitter disposition toward him. It grudges his good. And it not only keeps us from doing him good, but we would do him harm either by word or by deed. Envy is evil to the core. Proverbs 27 and verse 4 Wrath is fierce and anger is a flood. But who can stand before jealousy? Oh, jealousy. It's slain thousands with hands and tens of thousands in hearts. You can multiply that by a million. Thirdly, it strikes not only against God and our neighbor, it, it strikes at oneself. Envy doesn't leave us alone, no. Envy will turn us every which way but loose. He says, envy may be too weak to kill others, but it comes back to hurt us. And it wounds us even deeper that our envy cannot hurt the other person. We want to hurt him, and, and we really can't. We feel the bitterness of a heart. He doesn't. Job 5 and verse 2, vexation slays the foolish man. Brethren, envy fills us with inner turmoil. No envious person is ever happy, nor is he ever content. It has been said that envy is like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. Envy, I believe, is emotional suicide. Covetousness, discontentment, and envy, beloved, is a deadly cocktail of sins that will ruin our happiness here and if we don't repent hereafter forever. You say, that's a powerful statement, Pastor Steve. Does the Bible teach that? Well, yes, it does. 1 Corinthians 6.10, the covetous will not enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, discontentment is a highly, highly infectious disease. It infected and destroyed the grumbling wilderness generation. God didn't let them into the promised land. It prevents men from coming to Christ. That was the sin of the rich young ruler. It kills even prominent professing Christians. It, it, it killed Judas. It, it slayed Demas. Having loved the things of this world, you see. <clears throat> it has led to the downfall of whole nations. The Bible speaks of Babylon as being covetousness, uh, covetous and of Israel of being covetous. Those passages, if you're marking down Jeremiah 51, 13, and Isaiah 56, 11, and Jeremiah 6, 13. Brethren, make no mistake about it. Covetousness kills. And that is why we are forbidden close fellowship with covetous professing Christians. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 11. 
Evil companionship, Paul says, corrupts good morals. So that's where we're going to spend most of our time, that first point. The second two are shorter. Secondly, the Tenth Commandment requires us to be fully content with our own condition in life. If the covetous are among the unhappiest people in the world, then the happiest must be those who are content with their lot in life. Contentment is a grace that thrives under the most adverse conditions. Remember Paul's confession to a church written even while he was in prison. He could say this, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Philippians chapter 4, I think verses 10 and 11. Brethren, Christians are never the losers in matters of true, uh, matters of true importance, no matter what condition or situation they are in under God's providence. Some of the happiest people in the world are those that have the least in the way of things that men strive for to think that if they get them, they'll be happy, and they're not. Encouraging a young pastor laboring in a prosperous city that was hostile to the gospel, the aged apostle affirmed what we read in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, that godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. You say you may live on hamburger and you want steak. You may live on one side of the tracks and you desire to be on the other. You may be clothed with garments from Walmart instead of Christian Dior. But it's not those things that we have that make us happy. Happiness is being content with the things that we have. You see, brethren, contentment is decided not on the basis of a prosperous bottom line, but by resting in the provision of a faithful God. Psalm 37, verses 16 and 17. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. Indeed, we have a confidence in the Lord's wise provision, a confidence that the covetous man of the world knows nothing of. That's why we are exhorted in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? 
Perhaps we need to write that on a plaque and put it in our house or a piece of paper and tack it to the refrigerator. Let us pay careful heed and to the, Paul's warning in this greedy society in which we live. Paul went on to say to Timothy, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Brethren, be aware that this, this world seeks to press us into its materialistic mold where greed is regarded almost as a virtue and gratitude as a vice. How can you be happy with just that? Don't you aspire towards something greater and more luxurious? What's the matter with you? Lusting after our neighbor's possessions and our wanting more and more will never satisfy our empty hearts. Brethren, only Christ can fill that void. And even if you did gain earthly riches, if that was your goal, you would be the loser after all. Because that is your God, and that God will fail you. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. Who wrote this? The richest man in the world of his day. This wasn't theory for Solomon. He knew of what he spoke. He says, this too is vanity. Someone asked John D. Rockefeller how much money it took to make him happy. And he said, a little more than what I have. That's covetousness. That's the language of covetousness. Indeed, our Lord asks, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and nobody ever has and forfeit his soul? Brethren, even if we could gain the world, we would be the eternal losers without Christ. But if we have Christ, everything else we have, however little it is, it's a bonus. A contented heart is a cheerful heart, and a cheerful heart is a continual feast. If we would not covet, but instead be satisfied with God's dealings in our life, however fat or lean they may be, let us learn to pray with agor. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Thirdly, third principle teaching. We've seen first that the 10th commandment forbids us from envying our neighbor or coveting anything that is his. It requires us to be fully content with our own condition in life. And finally, the 10th commandment requires us to rejoice at the advancement of our neighbor. Not only are we not to covet what belongs to others, but instead be content with God's providence, we also are also to be happy about God's blessings upon others, even if His blessing excels God's blessing upon ourselves. How countercultural is that? 
Brethren, this is taught in the Word of God. If we love our neighbors as ourselves, we will rejoice in God's blessing upon him as if it was his blessing upon us. The Bible goes further. If we esteem others more highly than ourselves as we ought ought to, if they happen to be advanced before us, we will crucify any rising envy and be truly thankful for their exaltation. It takes great grace because we have great sin. To have that attitude, does it not? Indeed, the golden rule requires us to give to others what we would like them to give to us. It has become clear, has it not, that contentment will thrive only in the soil of humility? Brethren, if we walk lowly, we will have no problem exulting in God's blessing upon others, and not just upon others in general, but even upon others before ourselves. Have the spirit of John the Baptist. I must decrease, he must increase. Have you ever observed how common it is for competitors in the Special Olympics, to rejoice over someone else's win, even as it was their own, they might run past them and win the prize. And the ones that come up behind them, oftentimes, they're all ecstatic, and they're throwing their arms around the winner. I'll tell you what, they may have lost in one gene... God has given them something better in another. Let me ask you, how do you respond if you're passed over for a promotion that is given to someone else you deem less qualified than yourself? Can you rejoice in God's choice? Or how do you respond when someone else gets the praise that you believe you deserve? It is not uncommon for pastors and preachers to wrestle with their duty to rejoice at the advancement of other ministers. We are to covet the greater gifts, Paul teaches, but we are not to covet the place of those with greater gifts. Indeed, the greatest of these greater gifts, what is it? It's love. Paul says, I'll show you something more excellent. More excellent than tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. And that's love. The grace of love exceeds the value of all the greatest gifts. Indeed, wasn't that Jesus? He was the gift of the Father's love. Indeed, the greatest of these gifts is love, and love does not exalt itself or behave unseemly. Love is not envious. Love instead seeks the greater good of others and rejoices with their successes as if they were their own.
Finally, we are explicitly commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice. This duty has no exceptions. We are to enter into their joy as if it belonged to us. We make their joy our own. And for this reason, Paul counseled members of a church that were jostling for places of prominence when he says, if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I suggest to you that a church where the Tenth Commandment rules in the hearts of its members will be a church famous for its mutual love and joy in Christ. Let me ask you, as I've asked myself, is that the kind of church we want to be to the glory of God? Two concluding counsels this morning. First of all, since covetousness and envy grow out of discontent, let us confess and repent of our discontentment. Now, discontentment takes many forms, and consider with me just three. Discontentment can reveal itself in various syndromes, I'll call them. And the first expression of discontentment is what I call the good old days syndrome. When we are discontent with God's present dealings with us in providence. We want to go back to the good old days. We look in the past and there's just a golden glow cast over the past. We think only if we could go back then, then I would be happy. Well, what did the people in those days do? They, did they look back behind themselves and say, oh, I wish, I mean, you just keep going back and back and back. And because of sin in the world, there, ever, there never has been any good old days except before chapter 3 of Genesis. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7.10, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? You see, that's the old, good old days syndrome. He answers that question. For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. In other words, it's foolish. And this is especially a temptation for older saints, is it not? We're not content with today. But we look back in the past with a smile. We look at the present and maybe the future with a frown. But God of that day is the God of this day and the God of tomorrow. Has he not provided for us then? Is he not providing for us now? Will he not provide for us in the future? We were happy then. I trust we're happy. Won't we be happy in the future? Not to think this, this way is to suffer from the good old days syndrome. Secondly, the keeping up with the Jones syndrome. Being discontent with your status in life. You look around, everybody seems to have more than you have. And you're discontent. And maybe you end up getting more, but you look ahead, it, other people have more. You drove a beat-up Volkswagen at first, and you're thankful to have it. And somebody had a shiny new Chevy. Well, 
He ended up getting a Chevy. Now your friend down the street has a BMW. Ooh. Solomon has something to say about that too. Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 4. This striving, this jostling, this keeping up with the Jones mentality. And I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Always jostling for position. Climb the ladder climb to success. This too is vanity and striving after wind. If we're not content now, we won't be content there, you see. Contentment is something you take with you wherever you go. And therefore, that leads us to the third syndrome, the greener grass syndrome, I'll call it. Being discontent because we prefer someone else's situation to our own. You fill in the blank. Man, I wish I had what so-and-so has. Or where he is, or where they are. The grass is greener there than it is here. Husbands can do this with their spouse, with their wife. Wives can do this with their husband. That's one reason for adultery. The grass is greener on the other side of the neighbor's back door. Parents with their children. Oh, if I just had so-and-so's children. Mine are so disobedient. They just don't listen to, to me. But, you know, I look at John and Jane. They, they seem to be well well instructed, well taught, well behaved. Or grass is greener, someone else's career or job. Oh, if I just had that person's job, then I'd be happy. Or popularity. You know, I'm just a nobody. People consider me a wallflower. But if I was like so-and-so, I'd be the life of the party. You know, my phone would be ringing all the time and I'd be getting so many texts, I'd have to shut the phone off. Or their opportunities. You know, in the Christmas day of life, I, you know, I, I don't get that new toy. I just get a lump of coal in my, my stocking. You know, everything seems to be coming up roses for them. And I'm down trying to extract weeds. And I'm not making any headway. The grass is greener syndrome. Brethren, if we're not content where God has us, we're not going to be content anywhere else because that's where we are. Second, second will be done. The tenth commandment brings us back to the first commandment. Brethren, let us ask God to teach us contentment with him and being content with him, we will be content with all of his dealings in providence in our lives. Asaph learned this, did he not? After giving way to temptation, to envy the wicked and the rich around him, God opened his eyes 
to what was truly valuable and the real meaning of life. And he confessed in Psalm 73, 25 and 26, after all of that struggle, this is what he came to. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And beside thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can we say that? May we be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have learned contentment. May we learn to be able to say that, not just to sound good around other Christians, but really mean it when the things are all seem to be dark around us and we wonder where God is. That we'll be able to say, He does all things well. Let's pray. Our Father, Your Word has searched us and found us out. Indeed, that Word is divided between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and discover the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And Lord, we pray that having been discovered, we will run on the feet of faith and repentance to Jesus Christ again. We'll find ourselves not in the murky darkness of self-pity and excuse-making and discontent, but we will see these sins for what they are and we'll run to the, the cross and experience the fresh outpouring of the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. So, Lord, help us, help us, we pray, to see these things as we ought, that we would no longer be those who struggle and give way to discontentment, but when we struggle with it, we will run to Jesus, and we will say that he does all things well in my life, he's working all things together for my good, that everything in my life might redound to his glory, make us those people that are committed to that perspective, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.